Uh, Good morning, church family. My name's Aisha. I'm going to read the Bible for us. Um, Please follow along on the screen behind or also in the blue Bibles. It's on page 1132. Okay, let me read. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Thank you, Aisha. Well, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation We have an obligation. I wonder what springs to mind when you hear that word obligation. Um, I'll be honest, to me it sounds like a nightmare. Um, That's the word I use for something I really don't want to do but have to anyway, right? Like, I'd love to go to the movies with you tonight, but unfortunately I have other obligations. Doesn't it seem like the dream life is free from obligations? I wonder if that's why advertisers love using those two little words, no obligation, because we dream of turning the phone off, no to-do lists, and just doing what we want. Where does that end, though? No phones, no emails, no work, no family, no friends. Aren't there some obligations that are good, that make life meaningful? Could it be that the obligation-free life is not the way to freedom? An empty sales pitch. Uh, For me, no one put this better than Bob Dylan. Uh, He was one of the great free thinkers of the 60s. And I'm, I'm realizing this is the second sermon in a row where I've had a Bob Dylan reference. So I'm obviously a fan. 
At the height of his fame, uh, Dylan wrote this in a letter to a friend. He said, even the birds are chained to the skies. Isn't that a great line? Even the birds are chained to the skies. Here's a guy who can do anything he wants. But as he looked around, nobody was free. Even the birds are just doing what they're supposed to. Is he onto something? Even a 60s rock star is serving someone or something. So maybe it's not about whether you have an obligation or not. Maybe it's about who or what you're obligated to. And the great news from Romans 8 today is that there is an obligation that leads to freedom. When I got the news uh, not long ago that we needed a last-minute preacher for today, um, I thought it would be good to preach on a passage I've preached on before. Um, I chose this passage um, because I think um, in our part of the world, freedom is something we really hunger for but rarely taste. And as we head into a new school term and things ramp up again, how can I be sure that my quest for freedom isn't going to leave me chained to the skies. In verse 2, in this amazing chapter that we've just kind of jumped into today, Paul said that the spirit of life sets you free from sin and death. And in the first four verses of Romans 8, Paul paints this beautiful picture of what this new life looks like being sure that God's verdict on you will always be not guilty because Jesus took the condemnation that we deserve. Putting your confidence not in yourself, but in God. Loving people from a place of security. As you hear that, you might be thinking, am I capable of that kind of change? And do I want to? In the passage that Aisha read out for us today, Paul tells us how such a changed life of freedom is possible. And it all comes down to who or what is your master. And you might have heard as the passage was read, Paul keeps making this comparison between living in the flesh and in the spirit. Uh, the flesh is, is kind of Paul's shorthand way of talking about life that's lived independently of God. And the Spirit is God himself. And for Paul, you're always living in obligation to one or the other. So as we search out, set out on our quest for freedom, we'll be asking um, these points in your outline that are there in your leaflets. First, who is master of your mind? Who is master of your future? Who is master of your decisions? And then what kind of master do you serve? And my goal today is, is that it'll help you see the flesh as the cruel slave driver that it really is. And that you leave convinced of how freeing it is to live under the rule of the Spirit. So point one, who is master of your mind? Let's look back again at verse 5. 
Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. One of the great truths of the Bible is that God has made us thinking creatures. Uh, He's given us minds that are capable of amazing things from art to astrophysics. But even our most original thoughts, they come from one of two mindsets that really matter, flesh or spirit. The mind that rages against its maker or the mind that rests in knowing its maker. So many of our thoughts kind of just seem to float off into the ether. But what we think about God has huge consequences in verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. This is about life and death. But in what sense? I mean, after all, there are heaps of brilliant thinkers alive today who scoff at the very idea of God. So what does Paul mean when he says that the mindset of the flesh is death, while that of the spirit is life? I think he's saying the way you think shows which world you belong to. You know, this world which is full of life in one sense, but in another is full of violence and brokenness and heading towards its end. But there's another world, the world that broke in when Jesus walked out of his grave three days after being crucified. A world where sinners like us can have peace with God. A world where death is not the end. If you trust in Jesus, you still live in this world, but you belong to that world. And as you keep going in the Christian life, you'll find that your thoughts are more and more driven about what life in that world is about. Who would you rather serve with your mind? A father who loves you? Or the flesh which dominates this cruel world. I don't know about you, but when I'm presented with two stark options like that, I'm immediately hit with that fear of missing out. Uh, Maybe it's just a Gen Y thing, but FOMO is big for me. Like, if I set my mind on the things of God, won't I miss out on all that this world has to offer? Is there some way to get the best of both worlds? Paul addresses that fear of missing out in verses 7 and 8. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. There is no middle way. Your mind is governed by God or driven by everything that is against God. Doesn't that sound harsh? Don't we all know people who aren't Christian but who are genuinely good people? I do. Some can put Christians to shame in terms of their good deeds, right? So how is it fair that they can't please God? 
Well, the terrifying but beautiful truth of Christianity is that it's about something so much deeper than our good behavior. It's about our deepest thoughts and our loyalties. Like, um, as a husband, it'd be possible for me to do lots of good things for my wife and maybe even put other husbands to shame in terms of the amount of flowers that I buy. I'd be doing that from a very dark place if I was doing all those things while sleeping with somebody else. It's a horrible example, but it captures something of what actually we've all done with God. Deep down, we've all tried to live in God's world while pretending he doesn't exist. Doesn't mean we're not capable of doing good things. But if we do it while our deepest loyalty lies elsewhere, it all amounts to nothing. Who is the master of your mind? Loyalty to Jesus will mean that you can expect that you'll start changing your mind about things. Uh, A few years ago, I led a group of new Christians in reading through the Gospel of Matthew. And I loved it because I got to see this happening all the time. People started caring about things they never cared about before. Um, Like one lady who, in the middle of our study on the Lord's Prayer, said, Does this mean that I have to forgive the people who made my life miserable when I was young? Our growth groups, our small groups, are starting up this term in the next couple of weeks. And this is what we should expect as we get together to set our minds on what Jesus reveals of himself to us in the Bible. How do you feel about the prospect of changing your mind about stuff? Maybe we need to know a bit more about what kind of master Jesus is. So point two, who is master of your future? After that bleak picture of the mindset of the flesh, Paul wants to assure you in verse nine, if you believe in Jesus... You are not in the flesh anymore. And this has massive consequences for your future. Have a look in verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Notice how personal the Holy Spirit is. It says twice in this verse that he lives in you. Now, the idea of God's spirit living in you might sound like a weird psychological crutch for people who aren't rational enough to face reality. Can I suggest, though, that it's just the opposite? Having God's spirit living in you in no way undermines your intelligence or your ability to make rational choices. Remember those verbs of thinking there in verse 5. It's about actively setting your mind on something. Far from enslaved or manipulated, a mind set on the things of the Spirit is finally free to think about life and death from the perspective of someone who knows the giver of life intimately. He's personal. And he's powerful. He is the same spirit sent by God the Father to raise his crucified son to life. So if you're a Christian, 
Your future is as certain as Jesus' tomb was empty. Your future is as certain as Jesus' tomb was empty. If the thought of God living in you confronts you because it seems to threaten your independence, then you're on to something. But Paul is encouraging you to think about just how far your independence will get you. Being the master of your own destiny may help you find a good job, but it will never change the fact that you are mortal. You can make plans, uh, you can even decide all the details of your funeral in advance, but it will never change the fact that you are mortal. Independence will never change your ultimate destiny. Only Jesus can do that. So, if you had to choose between you or the risen Jesus being the master of your destiny, which one would you prefer? Life with Jesus doesn't mean your body will never see death or pain. It will. But it does mean that death is not the end of your story. And so life now means something, which leads us back to where we started in verse 12. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. Point three, who is master of your decisions? The Christian life brings amazing freedom to think clearly about life in God's world and amazing security about the future. So who would you rather be obliged to now? A father who loves you or a harsh taskmaster who wants to see you destroyed? The great tragedy, though, of the Christian life is that we keep kind of going back to our old master, the flesh. Uh, in that way, we can be a little bit like Dobby the house elf from the Harry Potter books. Uh, remember Dobby? guys know who Dobby is? Okay. Maybe you don't. Sorry, let me tell you. Dobby was a slave of this nasty family called the Malfoys, waiting on them hand and foot, until one day Harry Potter rescues him. But even after Dobby becomes a free elf, he's really afraid of the Malfoys. In a way, they still rule over him, because if he ever does something that they wouldn't like kind of ends up bashing himself in the head with a pot or something like that to punish himself. We can be like that. We can turn from the spirit who freed us to the slave driver who no longer owns us. And Dobby taps into a very real, very tragic experience. Why do partners of abusive spouses find it so hard to leave? even when they get the chance? Why do we spend so much energy trying to disprove the cruel words of teachers and parents from when we were kids as if they still ruled over us? Why do we turn from the spirit who freed us to a slave driver who no longer owns us? 
Now, to be clear, the flesh is still real for Christians. I'm not talking about sinless, painless living. But if you now belong to Jesus, your relationship to the flesh is forever changed. It's not a boss to obey anymore. It's an enemy to get rid of. Verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. It's not a battle to get free, but to live out the freedom you already have. I think there are three really important things for us to take out of verse 13. The first one is that you do not do battle with sin alone. The Holy Spirit makes it possible for you to put those old ways to death. The second is that the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life in no way cancels out your need for proactive work. Uh, You put the deeds of the body to death. Again, God is not the kind of master who squashes your individuality or dismisses your decisions. No, knowing that God is at work in your life uh, isn't an excuse to let go and let God. It's a call to action. Because third, this is about life and death. There are two roads. One for those who want to live without God, of estrangement from Him and all the fear and futility that that brings, leading to death and judgment. And another road for those who put their trust in Jesus of peace with God leading to eternal life. The implication that Paul is spelling out for us is this. The decisions you make now show which of these roads you're on. One leads to death, the other to life. And we need to hear this Because it's so easy to be like Dobby and treat our enemy, the flesh, as our master. And that leads us into kidding ourselves that we know better than God. We say, oh, I know that God made marriage as the right place for sex, but he just doesn't know how attracted I am to this person. He doesn't know how hard it is to resist those websites. Or, I know that God wants my friends and co-workers to hear the good news about Jesus, but he doesn't know what it would do to my reputation if I came out as a Christian. But God does know, and in his Holy Spirit, he's given you everything you need to do battle with those things. I don't know, what is it for you at the moment? Can you see what an ugly thing it is to choose to serve ourselves, the flesh, the world, the very master God paid in in the blood of his own son to set you free from? I want to say that there's every chance that we've all got stuff, right? And you might be really struggling with something today. Please remember the context of this passage. Remember Romans 8 verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Jesus has paid for your past, present 
and future sins. That's never up for grabs. But we need to be warned, don't we, of just nurturing these decisions that keep us obliged to our old master, the flesh. And the warning is not so much of God withholding forgiveness from you. The warning is of living in a way that's so inconsistent with what God has saved you for, the Father who loves you. Of turning from the spirit who freed us back to the slave driver who no longer owns us. So the battle for integrity is on. If you're struggling to see whether that's a battle worth fighting, um, maybe it's because you need to be reminded of just who it is that you are obliged to. Which leads to our last point. What kind of master do you serve? Paul really unmasks the true identity of our old master at the start of verse 15. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. That's what the flesh does. It looks like independence, but in the end, it's a slave driver. It can't do anything about death. And so your life becomes a desperate and fearful attempt to do something that matters before the grave. What's more, the flesh is powerless to do anything about sin. And so you find yourself unable to face up to your own shortcomings. And we all have them. In Sydney, um, I got involved in a church where um, they went out to their local neighborhood to get to know the people of lots of different religious backgrounds who lived around there. Um, I remember a great conversation we had um, with a Muslim man, uh, very well read and quite keen to teach us about Islam, um, he was telling us how you have to pay for your sins before you can get into heaven. And someone commented, oh, it sounds like you know, you're pretty confident that you're going to make it. And he wanted to make sure that we really understood. And he said, I'm sorry if you thought I was confident. No one knows where they're going. See, beneath that sincere devotion, here was a man deeply afraid about his standing with God. Can I say, this is where Christianity is so different. God wants you to be sure. And one of the clearest signs of that is that he invites you to call him Father. Second half of verse 15 Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. A few years back, um, friends of ours went from having no kids to two kids in the space of about a week. Um, after ages on a waiting list, they were finally given the chance to adopt a little brother and sister. It was crazy seeing the look in their eyes um, that week when they found out, just like total fear um, mixed with complete excitement. It was actually, I think, a beautiful picture of what God has done for us. Our friends paid some full-on costs to adopt those kids. Uh, even just seeing how hard they worked in that week uh, was exhausting, and that was before the parenting bit started. But ask them, they'll tell you, it was so worth it. 
Um, it's a massive change for these kids as they go from instability to security. Uh, it's a bumpy road as they learn what it means to be part of that family. But that will never change the fact that this couple is their mum and dad who love them and so want the best for them. That's the kind of master that God is. Not a slave driver, but our father, the judge of the earth, invites us to call him Abba, Father. That's exactly how Jesus spoke on the night before his death. Abba, Father, take this cup from me. That's no formulaic prayer intro. Um, That is a son praying to his dad, asking for help. Can you imagine? We get to call God the same thing that Jesus does. The name that he cried out as he paid the price for our adoption. Abba, Father, dare I say, Dad. To be a Christian is to be given the same status as Jesus himself with this same future. Considering where we all came from, with our minds dead set against God, using every faculty he's given us to run away from him, I reckon that's pretty amazing. We serve God not as slaves, but as his precious daughters and sons. That's the kind of obligation that sets you free. And God doesn't want you to be in any doubt about this. The Holy Spirit doesn't just make you a child of God. He wants you to know you're a child of God. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're God's children. How do you think of yourself when you're in a room full of successful people and someone asks you what you do? The Holy Spirit says, you are a child of God. You can't actually get a higher title than that. Whatever your occupation or your situation, it pales in comparison when that is your identity. How do you think of yourself when you slip up again in the same sin that you just can't seem to shake? A failure? A hypocrite? God's Holy Spirit says, you are God's child and you are not battling alone. How do you think of yourself when you rock up to church to serve in some unimpressive role? You are God's child, serving members of God's royal family, your family. So it all comes down to this. Would you rather serve a father who loves you or a slave driver who wants to destroy you? If you're not someone who trusts in Jesus today, is it time for a change of leadership in your life? Is it time to say goodbye to that harsh taskmaster, the flesh, with its fake promises of freedom and independence and become a free elf? Free under the kind and loving rule of Jesus, your saviour and brother. 
is it time for that change of leadership today? Is it time to start thinking more about that? That life course would be a good way to keep doing that. If you've been following Jesus for a while, are there parts of your life where you secretly think that you know better than your father? When you see people living without God thriving in this world, do you find yourself wondering what you're missing out on? Why do we look over our shoulders? I want to leave us with three encouragements from this passage to help you delight in being God's child this week. The first one is right expectations. Uh, Being a Christian will not be pain-free. It involves putting sin to death, and that's hard. But it doesn't ever change the fact that you are God's precious child. In fact, it confirms it because you're suffering with Jesus in order that you might be glorified with him. Right expectations. The second encouragement is, think about your resurrection. Our society is afraid to think about death, I think. But if you're a child of God, you don't need to be. In fact, it's quite healthy to think about your death because it reminds you, just as Jesus rose, so will you. And finally, remember that God is your dad. What are some practical ways you could remind yourself of that? Is it next time you pray, Our Father in heaven, or Dear Heavenly Father, just taking a second to remember what that means? Or is it the way you talk about your church, using language that reminds you that this is family? Uh, It's no accident through the centuries that Christians have called each other brother and sister. Would you rather serve a father who loves you or a slave driver who wants to destroy you? There is an obligation that traps you, but there is a kind that sets you free. Let me pray for us now. Father in heaven, What a wonder that people like us can pray to you as our dad. Thank you for setting us free from the flesh and all that that means. The futile lives that we lived, our sins, death, the judgment we deserve. You have been so kind to us, Father. But we confess that we so often find ourselves looking over our shoulder living as though we are obliged to the flesh. Please forgive us. Please help us to see the things of the flesh more like you do. Please keep leading us deeper into the freedom that you have saved us for. Please remind all of us today what a beautiful thing it is to be your child and send us out this week, Father, to revel in the freedom that we have in Jesus. Amen.